Well, good morning. My name is Jeff, and I am one of the associate pastors here at EV3 Fullerton. And uh, we get an opportunity this morning um, to jump into one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. And um, we're going to test you later to see how well you know it. Uh, it's nice to have light uh, now and to have good sound. Um, we, you do need to know that in the first service, because we just read that passage that talks about, you know, dark and lightness and people love the dark um, because their deeds were evil, what we did was we literally went through the room and found out whose deeds were evil so that we could get them out of the room and get the lights back on. Um, that worked, so we're just going to do that preemptively now. And we need to identify which of you might cause the lights to go off now. Uh, how embarrassing would that be if that was the case? And yet we're about to jump into a passage where the very principle is God already knows all of our deeds. And that's the premise right from the beginning as we jump into this. We're going to pick up where Darren had been going through John and he had started with that whole story of Nick at night and what had happened in that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And as they did that, they, they had covered some of that, that little basis of what Nicodemus wanted to say. He came in wanting to kind of appear to be smart with Jesus and said, uh, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. And Jesus turns it back around and says, actually, you don't know anything. And he kind of puts him, not so much to put him down, just to correct and speak truth, to say, you really don't know. And as we just started to get into this, it's, it's like you don't even know the earthly things. You don't even know the stuff here on earth. How could you possibly know the things of heaven? And so as we jump into this passage, that whole thing of how can these things be in verse 9, and Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then what Jesus does is he starts to tell him heavenly things. It's a really cool thing that what happens is he's like, you don't get this, but because you don't get it, you've got to get it sometime. So I'm about to tell you, and I'm going to tell you things that are heavenly. And this is what he, he begins to say in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He starts with this phrase, no one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended, the Son of Man. And right away, it's almost as if he's saying to Nicodemus, you know, I've, I've seen heaven. I've been there. I've kind of walked around. I've, I've been there. I've seen it. You? Have you seen it? And he, it's, it's, he's like, you don't even understand the earthly sayings, and yet you've never been to heaven. I have. I've been there. You want me to tell you about it? And he begins to tell this story. Now, some of you may stop and go, okay, this whole idea of ascended, no man has ascended. Didn't you have like Enoch? Wasn't he like was no more and he was taken up into heaven? And wasn't there Elijah where the chariot came and it took him up? I mean, there's two people. What is this no man has ascended? And in both cases in scripture, it says that both of those were taken into heaven completely different than the idea of them ascending to heaven for them saying, I'm going to get there. I'm going to go. They can't say that. They were grabbed and taken. 
And it's this idea that Jesus is putting here that this is no man has ascended. He's saying you cannot go there. That place is not available to you. You and your own power cannot get there. In fact, this is such a strong statement that 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 idea that none of us can get to heaven of our own strength, no man ever has, that's what Jesus is saying, you cannot do it. That Martin Luther, that whole thing about hanging the 95 thesis on the Wittenberg door, that concept was a point in time where he said, it's not about works, it's not about what you do that's going to get you to heaven. He said of this passage, this particular verse that you that no man has ascended, he says, this text is the thunderbolt against all works that is taught. It's the thunderbolt against it. It's the part that says it doesn't matter what you do. No man has ascended. All men may have tried, but they've never been able to pull it off. They cannot do it. And Jesus stops and says, look, you don't even understand how these things work, so let me explain it. And so at that point, Jesus begins to to go further. And as he does, he gives this illustration out of an obscure passage in Numbers. And it's probably a story that you've heard before. But he he comes in in verse um, 14 and says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So that's out of Numbers 21. If you've got your Bibles, jump back to Numbers 21. Because this is a crazy story. And the, the story here is people of Israel are, have left Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness. And there's a particular country they want to go through. And God says, no, you're going to go around. And as they're, they're grumbling about the whole thing of being out there and having to go around. And in verse 4 of chapter 21 of Numbers, it says, From Mount Hor they set out by the, way of the Red, by, the, by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people came, became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many, of the Israel, many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at it, and the bronze serpent um, would look at the bronze serpent, and they would live. What a crazy story. What is that about? So what we want to do first is we want to talk about this concept that what we're dabbling in in our life is we're dealing with things that we don't think have much consequence, and God says, no, it has much greater consequence. They begin to grumble against God. They speak against him, and God says, no, 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 don't do that. And it's so important that you understand this message that I'm going to send fiery serpents that once you're bit, you're going to die unless you turn and look at this snake on a stick. And that whole principle, as it does, it shows the severity about turning away from God. You see, when the snake bites, it's a physical death. But when you turn away from God, it's an eternal death. And those two are not equal. And God stops and says, the eternal is so much bigger. This relationship with me is so much more important than this little time on earth that I need you to understand that it's not good to turn away from me. 
It's so much worse than just simply dying. We don't get that. Neither did Nicodemus. Neither, you know, this is the kind of things that when we look at it, we don't fully understand it. But you have to understand, this is a miracle. And you stop and go, wait, no, miracles are when good things happen. Miracles are when great things happen. It's like when he walks on water or when he turns water into blood, that's a miracle. But in this case, the definition of a miracle, as you know, is a point in time where something supernatural happens, where something apart from the normal laws of nature then happen, and we call it an act of God. It's a miracle. If somebody is, is healed, if somebody's raised from the dead, that's not a normal thing. We stop and look at it and say, we can't answer it by other answers. Therefore, it's a miracle. The sending of the fiery serpents to bite the Israelites is a miracle. It's God reaching down through all of time and space to grab a hold of them and say, do not grumble and complain against me. Do not turn against me. You're going to need me desperately in your life. And God lays it out that way. Some of us, we have hardships in our life and we look at it not realizing that God may stop and say, no, it's more important that you go through this journey. In this case, that's exactly what happens. And the severity of what they're choosing was the important thing. And they got bit because of what they did. This idea of being bitten is something that is clear to us. If you haven't figured out the analogy of what happens there with the people in Numbers and what happens with us, Romans 3, all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have been bitten. All of us have that, that same bite that stops and says, wait a minute, it's beginning to eat away at us. You see, venomous snakes have poison in them, and that poison begins to decay the flesh, and it goes into the nerve endings, and it can cause all kinds of damage to your body just by the bite. A story a couple years ago of a gentleman and his family who were in South Africa, and they stayed at a lodge out in the bush. They're doing one of those safari things. It was a high-end lodge, fancy rooms and everything else, and they're sitting out on the patio. As it gets later, family and friends are out there visiting. They, one of the guys stops and decides, it's getting late. I think I'm going to go to bed early. So he decides to retire early. He goes to his room and he climbs into bed. As he climbs into bed, he goes to grab his pillows to fluff them up and he slides his hand underneath the pillows. And as he does so, his hand instantly just feels like somebody just hammered it. And he feels pain immediately in his right hand. He pulls his hand out. And as he pulls his hand out, attached to his hand is a huge snake. Big enough that as he jumps out of bed and stands there, the snake goes all the way down and is coiled on the floor while he's holding it up here. It's a huge snake. But it's a venomous Mozambique spitting cobra. It's deadly. And it has just bit him on the right hand. He grabs it off of his hand and looks at his hand because it's hurting so bad. And he says, I felt like my hand was going into shock. It was just like this thing is just moving down my arm and, and he's just staring at it. Then he looks over at the snake like, why would you do that? I never did anything to you. Why would you do that? But he doesn't hold the snake close enough up on the neck so the snake has motion and movement and begins to bite his left hand and he says it's literally just chewing, injecting more and more poison into his left hand. This guy's in trouble. Here's a deadly snake. He's been bitten. The wages of this is death. And he finally shakes the snake off. He opens the door. The snake goes out. He goes out. And he does something that's really, really important. He stops and realizes 
that he has just moments to get help. Before his body, that poison starts getting into his body and begins to shut him down. He knows that his family has all thought he's gone to bed. And so at this point in time, they're going to let him sleep. No one's coming to look for him. No one's thinking he's in any trouble whatsoever. And if he just simply lays down on the bed thinking, I'll get better, he'll be dead. So instead, he goes out and he grabs his wife and he says to his wife, look, I've just been bitten by a snake. The snake's gone. I don't know what kind it was, but it's doing weird things to my body. I don't know how much longer I have. Let me give you the symptoms so that I can at least tell the doctor what's happening to my body and maybe they can figure it out. And then he lays down on the bed and he puts his entire life into his wife's hands. He realizes he can do nothing, that if he's going to be saved, it's going to be because she's able to do something apart from him, because he's out of the game. And that's exactly what happens. This is the story that as Jesus is talking here, and he gives this example, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That at the point in time that you're bitten and you realize I'm in trouble, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters whether you put your trust in something that can save you. So at this moment, it's laid out. And it said, the, the people, they, by the way, in numbers, they pray and say, Moses, please have God take away the serpents. God doesn't do that. He doesn't take away all the serpents. Instead, what he does is he provides an antidote to their bite. He brings these, this staff and says to Moses, put the staff and put a bronze snake on it so that when they look at it, that will be what saves them. The snakes didn't go away. How many of you got sin in your life? You know, more. There's more here than when the first service, by the way. <laughs> I don't know what that says about the services, but there you go. But we all do, right? All of us have been bitten. We all get this. We get what it's like to have this poison in us that's decaying us. And Jesus is saying right here, just like that, you've got to look somewhere else to help you. Because if you think you're going to do it on your own, like that man in South Africa, he knew he's out of the picture. There's nothing he can do. And that's exactly what's happening here in this story. This idea of believing when Jesus says that, and so we'll look at the verse 14 again, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him and trusts himself to him may have eternal life, not just physical life. You already have that. That's a gift from him as well. But eternal life, something far greater. So this picture comes into play there. And now we move to John 3.16. I don't know if you guys have ever read this verse. Um, We just had it up there, so I guess most of you have. But it's like the verse of all verses. It's like the pinnacle, the, the very focus point, the focal point of the entire Bible. It comes down to this. It's been referred to as the entire gospel in miniature. Um, I love Max Lucado's phrase for it. He calls it the hope diamond of Scripture, of faith. The hope diamond being the rarest, largest, most beautiful diamond in the world. And he stops and says, that's it. Of all other jewels, there's the hope diamond. Of all other verses, there's John 3.16. And it stands there alone. So this is, it's one of those fascinating things. I, I love the story of Tim Tebow. 
He, a football player, when he was in college, his team in Florida went all the way to the college championships. And in 2009, they're in the, the championship game. And you know how football players will put the black paint right underneath their eyes to stop from the reflection of the, the light so that they can see and not have glare in their eyes. He put the black paint, but then he painted right above the black paint, on the black paint in white, John 3.16. So he goes into the game, he wins the game, or the team wins the game, and so afterwards, everybody wants to talk about the winning, to the winning quarterback about the game, and here's Tim Tebow, he's all excited, he's got John 3.16 right underneath his eyes, and there were some reporters that just ignored it, it's like, well, I don't see anything, and they wouldn't even talk about it. Understandable, some people are nervous about Christians, and nervous about verses, and nervous about people who paint things on their faces. Some of us are nervous about Tim Tebow too. Those are things that happen, but what happens is, is he talked about it a little bit with some reporters, but what happened was after he did an interview and people saw that on his face, Google reported they had over 90 million hits in Google searches for John 3.16 for this verse. So it's so important that we're going to have competition right now. We're going to have this side stand up and see how well you know it. No, seriously. There we go. We got one. We got two. We got three, four, five. Go ahead. Everybody stand up because now I'm not going to be able to know that you're not just mouthing it. But you're going to say it strongly, boldly, with conviction. For God. Well done. You guys can be seated. So as it says, that, uh, but ju- this is the judgment. Light is coming to the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. This side apparently is evil. They don't. You guys want a shot at it? Let's stand up. See if you guys can outdo them. You saw that they just said it. Can you guys do it louder with molar energy? For God's... pretty good. I'm going to say you're saved and you guys. No, it's not about what we do. Do we understand that? We know this verse. It's a, the verse itself is telling us it's not about what you do. It's about his love for us. It's about what he did. It's what he does, what he's doing. It's about him in our life. It's not that we can get up and quote verses. It's that he quoted the verse before we even knew we needed the verse. He's doing that work way before, before the foundation of time. He is already grabbing this gospel story, and he's telling it well. We can have it memorized. We can do all kinds of things, but we're bitten, and he already is working on the antidote. That poison is already pulsing through our flesh, and we know it. We feel it even to this day. The snakes have not been taken away. We still have sin in our life. But he has already done this other thing. But the difference is, is we have to look to him to see and to be healed. And that's the way this plays out in this passage. I I love the the story of Betty Crocker. Um, When they first came up with the first kind of instant cake mix, 
They, it, technology was making it so that we didn't have to just like start from scratch and build a cake anymore. Things like microwaves were showing up. Electricity was showing up. We, we got that now. There's lots of things that are happening where, where science and technology is, is making our life more, making our life easier. And that happens with Betty Crocker. They realize they can make a cake mix where all you have to do is add water, stir, putting it in the oven, and it's going to have a cake. And it'll taste just like any other cake. But when they first did that, nobody would buy it. Their sales were abysmal because people looked at it and said, no, if I make a cake, I have to take flour and I have to take sugar and I have to take some salt and I have to add some baking powder and I've got to put some, some shortening and some butter and some eggs and some oil and some water and all in the right mix. It's really complicated to make a good cake. And now you're just saying, I add water? What's a bunch of powder? There's got to be some kind of chemicals in there. I don't know what that stuff is. I don't trust it. So people wouldn't buy it. And Betty Crocker went, oh, this is crazy. This is such a good idea. Why aren't you using it? And after they talked to people, they realized why people were resistant. And so they reinstituted the formula so you would have to add oil and eggs. And suddenly it started selling like crazy and became the number one selling. It went off like hotcakes, pun intended. Hot cakes, the bacon, yeah, never mind. The concept is this, is it reveals something about us. We want it to have us play a role. We want that part of whatever it is in our life so that we somehow had something to do with it. With the cake, it's like, hey, we can bake a cake. It's like, well, let me do something. I've got to do something to show that I made the cake. And here when we look in this story, the story is, no, you, you've done nothing, you can do nothing. Just simply look to him. He does it all. That's the gospel message. He loves you so much that even in your bitten state, even in that sin, even in that part that is repulsive to a holy, just God, he stops and says, but I love you so much that I'm going to send my only son that you might not perish, but have everlasting life. It becomes the most beautiful verse ever. But it does another thing, is it changes us. If you'll turn to Ezekiel 36, it's another verse that you probably know well. But in Ezekiel 36, in verse 26, it says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you... um, I'm sorry. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That moment when God comes in and when we look upon him isn't that we have to just always, I've sinned, i got to look upon him, I've sinned, I've got to look upon him. When we look upon him, he transforms us, he changes us. And this moment for me, I remember that moment. I was about eight or nine years old, I was a young man, I'd grown up in a Christian home, my parents would take us to church all the time, we'd go to church in the morning, and then we'd go to church at night, and the only saving grace for Sundays was that football was on Sundays, and I love football. So I love to watch the football games, but those games would sometimes start early, and I would miss some of the games. 
because we'd go to church. And then afterwards, after the afternoon, sometimes the game was still going, and my dad would say, oh, we got to go to church early. we got a meeting, and you've got to go turn the TV off. And I never liked that. I, so one particular day, I got really mad at my parents. I screamed and yelled at them. I didn't want to go to church. Why should I have to go to church? I ran down the hall, stormed into my room, slammed the door shut, and threw myself onto my bed. Now, here's the thing you need to understand about my bed. It's a triple bunk bed. My brother and my cousin live in the same room with me, so there's three of us, and there's three beds. It's a big bunk bed. And I, at that time, had a bladder problem. And you can know that I'm okay now. There's nothing going to, you don't have to be nervous. But at the time, I had a bladder problem. Just that little fact, for whatever reason, my brother and cousin would never let me anywhere but on the bottom bunk. You can kind of figure that out for yourself later. But I had the bottom bunk, and so I throw myself on the bed on the bottom bunk, and I am mad and I'm angry, and so I push my hands and my feet against the top bunks as I'm laying my back on my bed, and I push up just angry. Ah! And as I do so, it lifts those bunks just slightly off the frame. So the bedpost shifts just slightly, and as it does, my hand goes over, and it slips back down, and it pins my hand right inside the frame. So the top two bunks are now piercing my hand. And as it happens, it's this tremendous pain, and now I'm like, ah! And I'm only nine. So I handle that moment better now, I'm pretty sure. But at the moment, I'm just like, now I start crying, like, oh, this hurts. And so I try to get it off. But the problem is, one, I don't have the motivation of the anger that I had just moments ago. And two, this hand is totally out of action because it's just pushing into the pain to push. And I cannot get the bed off of me. And my pride is not wanting to call out for help because I did it myself. It was my own anger. It was everything about my actions that brought me to this point. And it was at that moment that the Spirit of the living God whispered out to me, and he says, Jeff, this is exactly what I've been trying to tell you. I've been bitten, I've been stuck, and I'm stuck there in my own sin, and I can't get it off. I can't lift the bed off. I can't get out of this scenario, and the Lord's whispering to me, this is the point, Jeff. You need help. And it was like the scales fell off and I understood the gospel for the first time that this was what God is saying. You can't do it. Let me do it. Let me do it for you. And while I'm thinking that and I understand that and I begin to pray, my brother walks in. He sees what's going on. He lifts the bed off of my hand. I get it cleaned up, but I'm excited to go to church that day. And I am just thrilled because it finally makes sense to me. And we go to church, and I don't know whatever happened to the pastor. That new heart is in me now. I feel it. I'm a new creation made in Christ. But at the same time, something happened to the pastor too because he started to make sense. (laughs) Everything he was talking about was like, oh, that's good. That's really good. Where can I get this Bible? This started to finally click with me because he had made me new. He doesn't just cover sin. He makes us a whole new being. This is the beauty of this love of God and what he's doing in our life. The thing is, is I didn't just lie there, did I? After they took the bed off, I didn't lie there and go, okay, great, now I'm saved. There's a part of us that should go, okay, so what? What do we do with this? How do we take this and and make it something more? 
So the name of this church is the First Evangelical Free Church. That evangelical is the gospel. It's good news. That's what that is about. It's, it's evangelists are people who go tell the good news. We're saying by our definition and our name that we are the first evangelical, the good news church. This isn't a point where we lay on our beds with that news that we have help and we go, oh, isn't that a great thing? And we just stay here internally all by ourselves. That very point of if you were one of those people that was bitten by the snake in Numbers 21 and you're bitten and somebody taps you and says, you know, if you look at that pole, it's going to save you and you won't die. And you look at the pole and you're suddenly healed and then you stop and go, oh, that's great. And you go back to your tent and just go and have dinner. Well, people all around are dying. You wouldn't do that, would you? Wouldn't you go grab everybody and go, no, look, look, this has healed me. It can heal you too. That's the story of our name. That's who we are as a congregation of believers is we believe what God has done in our life, our story plus his story is something that we want to tell. We want to bring it out to others. And that's why this church has chosen that as a name because it's, it's centered on this verse that God so loved the world that he sent his son. That's just fun. So here's the thing. The whole world's been bitten too. It's not just us. It's everybody. They still have the poison coursing through their veins. And we, we need to be those same, same evangelists going out to tell that same story. Um, when we go into the rest of these verses, they get a little dark. As you look at, we're going to move on to verse uh, 18. Um, I'm in Ezekiel. Let's go to John. In John 3, once again, um, let's do 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. So I'm going to ask the sound guys if they can change the lighting just for a little bit, and we're going to experiment with this, this concept. And it's the idea, and we're going to just, I'm going to use the microphone as a prop. But let's imagine that this is a bit of the deeds of darkness that I've done. And so what happens is I'll come over to a space, and I'll stay over in a dark place. Because if I go over there in the light, you're going to see what I'm carrying. That I don't want anybody to see what I've got, because I'm not exactly sure you're going to like it. That if you knew this about me, this isn't a good thing. But what this passage says, if you look at at verse 21, is it stops and says, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And that as we move into the light, we find ourselves at a point where we're stopping to say, no, we want to show what's happened in our life. But this doesn't look so good if this is the deeds of evil. And that means that's something we leave behind. 
the whole concept of Scripture is that at this point, the works part isn't that it earns us salvation. The works part is that we stop and realize what God's done, that over here in the dark place is a place that we want to leave, and yet here we are as Christians, and sometimes we're hanging on to sin, and we're like, yeah, but I belong over here in the light, but I don't want to go fully in the light because if I do that, you're going to see this, and I don't want to let go of that. So we find ourselves with a foot in both worlds. Anyone? Is it just me? This is exactly what he says at this point. Is he comes along and he says, if you want to do what is true, come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. And I love one of the other versions. I believe it's the New American Standard. It says wrought in God. The Greek word means produced by God. That his deeds have been wrought by God, produced by God. That if I'm standing here in the light, that this brightness is a point that I actually want to show the world what's happened to me. I want to tell my story because of what he's done in my life. That's the story of the gospel. When I was in uh, Seattle, one of the things that um, I had to do was raise money for uh, the nonprofit that I worked for. And at one point in time, um, one of the largest gifts I ever got came from a, a gentleman by the name of Floyd. And Floyd would do some really generous things throughout um, our relationship. And uh, one particular day, cold winter day, he invites me to breakfast. And he says, Jeff, why don't you come over to my place to breakfast? Well, I knew where his place was. It was a retirement home. And I'd been in it before to speak to all the, the old elderly people that were living there. And so he invited me over. And I come over and go up to his room to have breakfast. And when I come in, there's an attorney there. And I'm looking at him like, did I do something wrong? You got to bring in an attorney? And he's like, no, no, I want to. Uh, he had some questions. And so the attorney asked some questions. And then basically Floyd stops and says, Jeff, I want to give your organization $5 million. I said, okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't, that breakfast just turned to a blur. Because it was like, are you serious? $5 million? After that breakfast was over, I went out onto the street, and it was a cold, cold Seattle morning. But you know what? The very first thing I wanted to do was to tell somebody else. I don't, if there was somebody walking down the street, I almost wanted to grab him and go, hey, he just gave me $5 million. But I said, I pulled out my phone, and I began to text. And I texted some of the, the guys at work. I started texting our development team that would raise funds. I texted some of the board members, and I'm standing out there in the frigid cold because I'm so excited about this story that just happened to me. Are you excited about the story that's happened to you? I'm not trying to make us feel guilty, just the opposite. I'm wanting us to come to a point to where we recognize and remember why it feels so good in the light. And most of the time we hesitate to come into the light is because we're hanging on to part of that darkness. It's like carrying a bag of snakes around. The very things that have poisoned us are the things we need to set down and put away so that we can come in and not show what we've done, but rather reveal the story of what he has done. For us to stand, once again all of us stand, and quote this verse once more. And it starts with love. For God,
Rich Mullins has a quote that he stops and says, we're not saved because we're good. We're good because we're saved. We're not saved because we're good. We're good because we're saved. Let me pray for us. Lord, I am so grateful for your love. I am so grateful for what you did when I, in my sickness and bitterness and sin, couldn't do a thing for myself. Even today, Lord, the only goodness I have is because you have first loved me and you have created that in me. You have wrought that in each of us. Lord, may we who are standing now who know this truth shine brightly to the community around us who desperately needs you, who also have been bitten. Lord, may we be a light to this community so they too can know of your love and your grace. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.